Well, uh, Lord of the Dirt, I'm sure that there's a farmer somewhere that would love that title, uh, even though it, I think it was rightfully given to God. Uh, it's, it's a good, good title. I've never heard that name given to God. Uh, it's a good one. It's a good one. Uh, well, and in talking about the series, I just have a couple of questions for us in getting started here this morning. Uh, but what are the, the two questions you usually are asked when you first meet an acquaintance? Usually, what's your name? What do you do? That's right. That's right. And uh, if, if you were to uh, calculate where you spend your time and uh, during the week and did a you know, big pie chart kind of thing, what do you think are the top two places where most of your time is spent? There's work and sleep. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing that we spend uh, sleep, you know, almost half our life is spent sleeping, but uh, the other part, almost nearly all at work. So work takes up a significant part of our lives, and it almost seems like it's melded with our identity here in, in this country, in this day and age. In fact, if uh, your family name is Shoemaker, Smith, or Baker, uh, you don't have to wonder about what your ancestors once did. Uh, you, you know what their occupation was. Uh, so since work takes up such a major part of our lives, it's important that we understand how the good news of Christ not only turns our lives upside down, but turns work upside down. Uh, a couple of years ago, we did a series on work called Where's the Church on Tuesday? Uh, and today I want to inter- address the intersection of work and the gospel in a new message series called Life at Work. And I want you to know that this is for everybody uh, because there's all, all kinds of work that we are engaged in, all right? Even if you're a student, that is your job right now, right? It's your work. Uh, if you're, you are a mother that is at home, uh, that is your work. Or a, a wife that is making a home, that is your job. Uh, if you are um, in the military, that is your job. So no matter what you're doing, you have some sort of occupation that is your work. So this is a message for everybody. And today and over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the tensions that work has handed to us. We're going to look at what we want from work. We're going to look at the traps that are found in work. And we're also going to look at what helps us work. All these things are found in God's Word. But most of all, I hope that over the next few weeks, we can get a new perspective on the nature and purpose of work. And I think God has given us a blueprint for the life at work that challenges some of the cultural perspectives that have been handed down to us. Now, I'd like you to take a look at, with me uh, at, at Genesis 1.27. And Sue began alluding to this and uh, talking with the kids. But God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been creating, they've been making the earth and everything in it, making it a suitable place for life where uh, mankind can dwell. And he creates and puts man in that place, and he calls it good. In verse 27, God creates mankind, and he creates a male and female in his image. He then gives man and woman instructions on what they are to do. And then we come to the end of this overview of creation, the completion of God's creating, and what does God do? By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. 
And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, set apart, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Do you know that God is a worker? (coughs) From the very beginning, this is the first picture and image. He's not just creator, but worker, God the worker. I mean, it's the repeated word in this little passage, work. God labored. He worked six days and then rested on the seventh. So what do we know from this passage about God and mankind? Just from this brief passage in 27 and 28, we know that God made us as his image bearers, male and female, but we're also stewards made to develop the world and make it a better place. To take the raw materials God has put and to create and make them into something else, something new, something better. Chapter 2 of Genesis then does this instant replay, zooming in on the sixth day and specifically on the creation of man and woman. God forms Adam out of the dust and he breathes life into him. Pause there for a moment. Can you know... Up to this point in creation, we've been seeing God speaking everything into existence. But at this moment, can you picture God down on his knees, moving and and, and messing with the dirt, forming Adam out of it? And then in verse 8, it backs up to say that God had planted a garden in the east, and he puts the man in the garden. Now, the formula of Eve comes next, and they both are placed in the garden. But can you picture God planting a garden? How did he do that? Did he do it like he did with Adam? Did he, did he get his hands in the dirt? Or did he just speak it into existence? I kind of wonder. You know, we just had a description of God working in the dirt with Adam, but, you know, in planting a garden, did God pause and actually stoop and run his, soil, run his fingers through the soil. What do you see? What do you imagine? Well, what in these few sentences do we learn about God and about mankind in just these few sentences in chapter 2? Well, earlier, God was, his creating was called work. And in his image... He told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, uh, that, that we are to participate, in a sense, in creating in a way like God. But here in this part, in chapter 2, the thing I see clearly is God the gardener, or Lord of the dirt, and in making mankind in his image, he makes them to do what he did, gardening, a type of work, cultivating, taking the raw resources God created and intending and caring and shaping it. God created us to be like him, to create and to cultivate. It's the substance of our work, even our work today, even if we aren't gardeners or farmers. And all this is before the very first sin. All this is before the fall of man and creation. The striking truth from Genesis is that work was part of paradise. Work was a part of paradise. Now, I know some of us may have been handed down information that work was part of the curse, but that's incorrect. And really, it's a Greek idea 
that has influenced Western civilization. You know, the, the polytheist Greeks believed that their many gods didn't work, but instead they made humans to do their work for them. And to be more like one of the gods meant that you worked less, or at least you did less physical labor and, and you try to do more mental labor. And so the Greeks even had a ranking of what was more noble work than other types of work. They had been handed, and this has been handed down over the generations, uh, even to a kid like me, when I was a teenager, I remember my dad sharing with me what the five noble professions were according to the collegiate world at that time. And these kind of thoughts have affected us today, where we think of some work as better or worse. You know, there's, there's even a popular TV show now, you've probably seen it, Dirty Jobs, that many times shows us the jobs are the, and, that are difficult or strange that nobody else wants to do. And it leads us to this, this kind of Greek kind of thinking, to this conventional view of work that work is just a job. It just, it's just a means to a paycheck with the ultimate goal of retirement. But that's really a Greek view, not a biblical view. And during the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther uh, tried to set this right. During his lifetime, there was a view that work, uh, the work of the upper class, nobility, uh, that, you know, working with government, working with law, uh, tutoring, uh, maybe some merchant work, uh, but uh, clergy, pastoral work, that was the only kind of noble work. That was... uh, uh, up there with, with holy kind of stuff. And there was a special emphasis on clergy and their work being more noble, uh, this kind of separation of, of sacred and, and uh, secular. And so there was this sacred work and then there was secular work. And, and secular work was looked down upon as less than. But Martin Luther declared that was unbiblical and that God worked and made us in his image to work. And we're to imitate God in work by creating and cultivating wherever we're at. Luther declared declared that all work is noble and that all work can be worshipped no matter what we do. Meaning the way we love God and love others, our work is that form. In the Bible, we do see the word calling. Calling is connected a lot of times... um, to those in the Bible, it's, it's connected with those who work full-time or give themselves fully to the work of the church of Jesus. But did you know calling also applies to all types of work, not just work in the church? During Luther's time when Latin was the primary language of learning, they didn't say the word job. Instead, they would use the word vocation. I think a lot of us know what that means, but the root of that word is vocal or voice. And vocation actually means a single person being called out, an individual being called out. Maybe you're still listening for your calling. Maybe that's the place you are in the season of life. You're listening for your vocation. And, And maybe to you, for the time being, you're just doing a job. But remember, that job is still noble work. Because all work is noble and all work is worship. And when you think about the two times that we see God on earth, we see him working. 
In the beginning, he was there as a gardener. And once again, God the Son came working as a carpenter. You know, do you ever wonder how did Jesus view carpentry? Was it just a job to him? I mean, his real mission or calling was to save people from their sins, right? I mean, it was even in his name, Jesus. But yet, he only did his greatest work, or what we think to be his calling, for three years of his life. So from a young man at 13 all the way to 30, Jesus did carpentry work for 17 years. How did he view his work? Was it just, just kind of, ah, this is just a job till I get to what I'm really here for? Just kind of blow it off. I mean, what, what kind of carpenter do you think he was? I mean, did he try to master his craft? Or did he always think, well, this is not what I'm really here to do, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to master and work on these other things? And he became disengaged from his work, or, or maybe he underworked. You know, we don't have any details on that part of his life, do we? But we do know that during his ministry years, that wherever Jesus went, things got better. And other people flourished around him. And I imagine that even in his carpentry work, he was just as honoring to, of God And he was rearranging raw material, taking that wood, bringing order out of chaos, shaping that wood, making things useful for others. And I believe that was just as noble and worshipful as healing a lame man or teaching the Beatitudes. In 1 Corinthians 15.45, Jesus is is described as a life-giving spirit. I think we see that in his ministry years, but what was it like when he was a life-giving spirit in his carpentry work? I believe Jesus not only created and cultivated in his work as a carpenter, but I believe that with the people he interacted, that they were refreshed by him, that he was a life-giving spirit to the people that he worked with in carpentry. Now, I know some of you might be thinking about your work. Maybe, maybe you make a product. In some way, that product hopefully helps the working of society, benefiting individuals or, or even another worker in some other place. Some of you might provide a service to society, and without that service, things just don't get done, or people don't grow, or people can't get well. Some might have work that is repetitive. Some people might have work that's even mind-numbing, at times others might have work that's well paid but you begin to wonder how it even benefits society you know sometimes it's more clear for the banker in a small town helping a farmer with his mortgage to see the benefit of his service and product than than a big-time financier in the big city bundling many mortgages together to be sold in an international market he might begin to wonder what what am i doing this for Our society has become complex, and the complexity now comes with work and the things that we do. You know, there are more problems with work than identifying purpose, isn't there? There's disappointment in work sometimes. There's empty promises that work gives of of wealth, power, 
recognition. There, there is being disengaged from work. Sometimes there's being over-engaged with work. You know, there are problems with work, and Genesis reveals a bit of why this is. Even what you might think is the perfect vocation, you'll find that there are some problems with that perfect vocation. In Genesis 3, the account of the first sin and God's punishment is recorded. And because of sin, God says this, Genesis three seventeen through 19, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. You see, the fall brought about a change from paradise. We were still going to work, but it's going to be more difficult. And there's going to be thorns and thistles. Sue talked about weeds. What, what do weeds or thorns and thistles do? They choke the plants out, like they rob the plants that you want to grow of the nutrients. Sometimes they'll even wind around it and choke the life out of it. Maybe sometimes there are some obstacles, some things that are some thorns and thistles in our work and our vocation that tries to choke the life out, rob the nutrients of it. Obstacles that will try to choke out your work or make it difficult to, for, to produce things. And ultimately what weeds, thorns, and thistles do is they prevent a plant from being fruitful. You ever experience fruitlessness in work? Maybe not every day. But every once in a while, you have a day where you just feel like, did I get anything done? Did I help anybody today? Really? We all have experienced fruitlessness in our work. And it's part of the fall. There are times when we will envision more than we can actually accomplish the fall. The experience of work will sometimes include pain, conflict, envy, and fatigue. And not all our goals are going to be met the fall. Resistance to our work has become a reality since the fall. And there's more to say about this in the following Sundays, but for the moment, I'll say just as we sinners always fall short of the glory of God, we have to accept that in this world, our work will always also fall short. But that is not the final word. Because Christ comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. But let me just sum up the blueprint of work that's emerging from the beginning of the story of God. Work is a vocation. It's a calling. An individual being called out. And God made us in his image and he modeled work for us by creating and cultivating. God is a worker. It means we use our time, talents, and resources to bring things into existence and develop order and manage them for the benefit of mankind and for the glory of God. God made us stewards over creation, and so our work is a way that we can develop the world and make it a better place. That's blessing others, that's loving others, and loving God at the same time. And in our work... We're to be his image bearers. Jesus set us the example by being a life-giving presence. And we can be a life-giving presence in our work by providing for others, having an attitude of humility, being present, dependable, and excellent in all our work. There's a story I want to I tell you about this idea 
of what might happen if we were just excellent in our work. Uh, there's a story, actually, I heard this uh, recently. Uh, there was a guy sharing it uh, at the WNC men's meeting uh, this month. Uh, it's a men's gathering that meets at the Cove, uh, second Tuesday every month, early in the morning. I know some of you aren't early morning guys, uh, um, but, and it's not possible. Uh, Brian keeps on bugging them about doing a, a late night meeting. Uh, we'll see if they can pull that together. But uh, the story is, is uh, actually written by Albert Hubbard, uh, who was a journalist who uh, wrote this article called A Message to Garcia in 1899. And it, uh, 1899 was the year after the Spanish-American War. And so lots of people were talking about the war, how the war was won, and people were talking about who were the heroes and who were the villains. And um, during this war, um, McKinley was the president. And part of, uh, all, actually all of Cuba was uh, taken over, uh, was ruled by Spain and was, uh, I guess, in a sense, enemy-occupied. And uh, in Cuba... There were Cuban rebels, and one of the, the leader of the Cuban rebels uh, was a man named Garcia, and I can't say his first name, uh, but his last name is Garcia. You can uh, look this up uh, if you want to verify the facts. But he was one of the rebel leaders, and McKinley was wanting to get a message to this rebel leader to, to help in being allies against the, the Spanish in, in Cuba. And uh, McKinley was like, how do we get this? Uh, I need to get a message to him. How do I get it to him? with the rebel with uh, Spanish forces there and we don't even know where he's at on the whole island of Cuba and uh and his aide said to him well there is there is a man um serving in the military his name is Rowan um and I don't know his exact rank I I think he may have been just a sergeant and uh so he wasn't a high-ranking official but uh recommended you got to talk to Rowan bring him in I think he can do this job and so uh, Rowan reports to the president, and the president says, I need you to get a letter to Garcia. I need you to get this message to him, hands it to him. Rowan says, yes, sir, takes the letter, puts it in a, a, a leather oilskin uh, pouch, tucks it under his jacket, and leaves. That's it. No other words, no other conversation, no questions. And uh, a week later... Uh, the Navy gets him to the Cuban shore. He walks into the jungles. Three weeks, finds a way to infiltrate and get the message to the rebels and shows up on the other side of the island where the Navy picks him up, takes him back home. Now, this story has been made into movies. Uh, there's been articles. I think there's been a book written. And, and Hubbard, in his article, writes, if we can only have some more men like Rowan we could have an amazing world, an amazing country. And he said, do this test. If, if you're an employer or, or even with, uh, as, as parents with your kids, do this. And, and he, he says, do this test. Uh, hey, could you uh, find some information about uh, the life of Coriego? Bring it back to me. If you ask someone at your work to do that, if you ask your child to do that, what do you think would happen? Probably be a list of questions, right? Well, who, who is he? Well, how much do you want to know about him? Uh, what, what in the world do you, why, why do you want this? Why do you want this information? Well, what's wrong with so-and-so? Why can't he go and do this information? Is this part of my job description? Am I, can I really do this? What, 
what, are you in a hurry? How, how soon do you want this information? I mean, think about the list of questions. Would you have anybody who would be like Sergeant Rowan who would just say, yes, sir, and go and do it, and get it done, and take initiative, and independent action, be a little autonomous, and just do it? Sometimes we need some people who have the capacity for responsibility, for independence, for thinking. We need people who can be competent. Are you competent with your work? Can you become competent in your work? Do you realize that you have the ministry of competence if you're a Christ follower? to do your work well and to do it with excellence and to do it the best that you can. And when you do that, it is a light that shines in this world where things are not done so well. Well, the band's going to come up. We're going to continue to worship. But I want to read this quote to you from Richard Pratt. In his book, Design for Dignity, he wrote this from God's perspective on this work. Take this portion of my kingdom. I am making you my steward over your office, your workbench, your kitchen stove. Put your heart into mastering this part of my world, God says. Get it in order. Unearth its treasure. Do all you can with it. We don't labor simply to survive. Instincts do that. Instead, God has given each of us a portion of his kingdom to explore and develop to its fullness. It's a great quote. So do we understand the impact of engaging in our work? Engaging in our work for God can bring about change for his kingdom. Do you understand that to bring the gospel to every man, woman, and child, we need sanitation workers, teachers, nutritionists, interior designers, waitresses and waiters, printers, writers, financiers, bakers, brewers, shoemakers, farmers, students, landscapers, software developers, entrepreneurs, CEOs, maintenance workers, and not just preachers and pastors? We need everybody. And do you understand that when you do your work well, being a life-giving presence, it is glorifying to God and is an expression of your worship, that you are loving God and loving people? Do you understand that when all work, that all work is noble and all work can be worshiped to God, and that when you understand this, that you are standing as a missionary in your workplace? This is how we will change life as we know it through the love, loyalty, and friendship of Jesus Christ. It's when our work becomes our worship. There is no separation between secular and sacred. Faith is not private. Faith is public. And faith is at the center of our lives, touching every part of who we are and what we do, including our work. God, I just pray that you would take your word and impress it. I pray that in this this moment, Lord, that you would make us into people that could be your image bearers in our workplace, to be life-giving presence wherever we're at. In Jesus' name, amen.